WBSM presents Spooky South Ghost with your hosts Tim Weisberg and Matt Costa. Good evening, welcome to Spooky South Ghost. We're going to do this show handheld style because <laughs> right as I went to adjust the microphone as we were coming on, it came out. Hold on one second, folks. This is. There we go. Station the trainer. Welcome to Spooky South Coast. Tim Weisberg here along with the silent assassin Matt Costa, science advisor Matt Moniz, broadcasting on WBSM and also on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. And if you haven't checked in and watched the live video at SpookySouthCoast.com, what are you waiting for? You'll get to see uh, at least myself and Matt Moniz on the screen. We hide Costa over in the corner because uh, he's actually over there looking at uh, porn on the Internet. So we don't want to... If if we actually broadcast that on the camera, it would be the transmission of said porn, and then we'd be in real big trouble. As it is right now, they are they're over eighteen, right? You've checked. What? <laughs> All right. But uh, we do have a great show planned tonight because we're going to be talking with a f- couple of favorite guests here on the program: Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin. They're going to be talking with us about their new book, "Science Was Wrong." Startling truths about cures, theories, and inventions they declared impossible. And by they, I do not mean Stanton and Kathleen. I mean they as in the scientific establishment. Matt Moniz, you're somebody who works in science, and you're somebody who's wrong from time to time. So (laughs) I know that you don't have a problem admitting when you're wrong about things in the scientific field, but has it been your approach that science as as a field of study has a hard time admitting when maybe they, they were against something that they shouldn't have been? I deal with that stuff every day, and that <laughs> has nothing to do with things paranormal. No, no, it's just anything. And, and most of the stuff that we'll talk about tonight is not actually paranormal. It's uh, stuff outside the paranormal as well. To me, I don't know. Hindsight is twenty twenty, of course, but uh, Stan and Kathleen, through this book, they take you through step by step the innovators of certain things and exactly when... Everybody turned on them, and then you see that magic moment. Well, okay, okay, you know maybe they were onto something. For example, you know vaccinations against uh, disease, which we'll talk about a little bit later on. You know things that to us make perfect sense, but for years were resisted, and then retroactively, the people who made these discoveries and made these advances are honored. But uh, a lot of the cases in the book, they never seem to get the recognition that they deserve either. So. We'll get into all that and more with Stan Friedman and Kathy Martin in just a few minutes. Uh, we do want to let everybody know there is one ticket, at least as far as I know. I haven't checked with Leanne yet, but one ticket remaining for Dead of Winter at the Lizzie Boyd and Bed and Breakfast next Saturday night, February 26th. We will not be here. We will not be doing a program that night uh, because the Bruins are on. So if you want to have a spooky South Coast experience next Saturday night, the only way to do it is to buy that one remaining ticket. Uh, it's going to be a small investigation, 25 people. You're going to get dinner. You're going to get a tour. You're going to get uh, lectures about the history of Spiricom and the new Spiricom that's been developed by Bill Chappell. That will be presented by Jeff Belanger. Uh, and then you'll have your chance to go. We're going to do teams investigating each floor. So there's never going to be any more than six people on the floor that you're on. Well, six people plus you know somebody from the from the crew. 
but that I mean that's incredible to have a small group like that and be able to to get the whole floor to yourself. And we're gonna have this new Spiritcom there for you to try out. We're gonna have the cell phone to the dead. We're gonna have I'm, I'm gonna bring my dowsing rods. We're gonna go old school. <laughs> I'm gonna bring my dowsing rods, uh, tape recorders, cameras, and uh, I know that uh, Andy was talking about bringing some of his stuff too. And Moniz, you're gonna have a piece of equipment with yeah, you as I'm well. Yeah, I'm gonna bring little portable thermal. So uh, and our plan, hopefully is to put you in the basement with that thermal camera, and maybe you can capture that pesky little shadow person that's been bothering us every time we go there now. I hope to. Sounds good to me. I hope uh, if, if if you haven't heard the stories, and of course you can read about it in my book, Ghost of the South Coast, but go back and listen to some of the past episodes where we talk about it and uh, whatever it is that's down there. It's, it's definitely interesting. It's been seen not just by us, but oh. by other people who have uh, been at the house as well. All right, well, we're going to take a break. When we come back, we'll bring Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Marden on to talk about their new book, Science Was Wrong, Startling Truths About Cures, Theories, and Inventions They Declared Impossible. And, of course, the phone lines will be open throughout the program, 508-996-0500, 1-877-996-1420. You can email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com, and you can jump in the chat room on Spooky TV at SpookySouthCoast.com. So we'll be right back with more here on Spooky South Coast. We love to sing, we love to dance, we admire beautiful women. We're human, and sometimes very human. Beaming from the studios of AM 1420 WBSF into the night and beyond, here's more of Spooky South Coast. All right, welcome back into the show. Tim Weisberg here, along with... The Silent Assassin, Matt Costa, Science Advisor, Matt Moniz, broadcasting live on WBSM and on Spooky TV. So you can log on to SpookySouthCoast.com and click on the Spooky TV icon, and you can not only see what's going on here in the Spooky Studio, but you can jump into the chat room as well. want to say hi to everybody in there. Sorry we didn't get the live chat going this week, uh, and I know this week I really don't have any chance of that happening, but stay tuned. We'll, we'll try and work that back into the weekly schedule, that's for sure. All right, I am so excited for this discussion because we have two of our favorite guests of all time coming back on the show. Nuclear physicist and lecturer Stanton T. Friedman received his Bachelor's of Science and Master's in Science degrees in Physics from the University of Chicago in 1955 and 1956. He was employed for 14 years as a nuclear physicist by such companies as GE, GM, Westinghouse, TRW Systems, Aerojet General Nucleonics, and McDonnell Douglas, working in such highly advanced classified eventually canceled programs as nuclear aircraft, fission and fusion rockets, and various compact nuclear power plants for space and terrestrial applications. He became interested in UFOs in 1958, and since 1967 has lectured about them at more than 600 colleges and 100 professional groups in all 50 U.S. states, 9 Canadian provinces, and 16 other countries, in addition to various nuclear consulting efforts. He's been published... uh, in more than 90 UFO, UFO, he's published more than 90 UFO papers and has appeared on hundreds of radio and TV programs. He's the original civilian investigator of the Roswell incident and co-authored Crash at Corona, the definitive study of the Roswell incident, Top Secret Magic. His controversial book about the Majestic 12 group, established in 1947 to deal with alien technology. It was first published in 1996 and went through six printings. And an expanded new edition was published in 2005. He was presented with a Lifetime UFO Achievement Award in Leeds, England in 2002 by UFO Magazine of the UK. Hello, Stan. Thank you for joining us tonight, and welcome back to the show. 
I'm delighted to be on. I, I need to make one change. It's now 17 other countries. I was in Saudi Arabia a couple of weeks ago. Oh, wow. And how are, you, how are you received there? Extremely well. It was a panel. There were five of us. It only lasted 75 minutes. It's a long way to go for that. <laughs> <laughs> but the people who talked to the panelists over the next couple of days were all friendly and hopeful, and I got a nice letter the other day saying how much they enjoyed the panel and uh, inviting me back for next year. Well, it'd be nice so, if we could get some of that Saudi Arabian money behind UFO research. Wouldn't that be neat? Well, people, I'll tell you, people paid $4,000 to attend the fifth global competitiveness forum. How's that for a long phrase? And, oh, one of the keynote speakers was uh, Bill Clinton. <laughs> Uh, you know, they had a few uh, big shots there, a lot of big shots there. Who else could afford the money, you know? <laughs> well, did you, did you get a chance to speak with President Clinton? No, no. Because uh, uh, there were crowds around him, and uh, he didn't stay for the sessions. Uh, and we didn't even know he was going to be there until the evening before, probably for security reasons. I don't know. Tony Blair was there, a panelist, and uh, so was Jean Chrétien, the former Prime Minister of Canada, and heads of all kinds of companies like Volkswagen and uh, Google and Boeing and you know it, it was a fascinating uh, trip and I must admit that uh, a lot of people said hey what are they doing with competitiveness they got oil they don't need to worry <laughs> well all you got to do is look at what happened in Egypt and it's happening in other countries in the Arab world and you'll see why they want their people to be educated they're mm -hmm. even educating women believe it or not uh, they've built the three major universities there. They are encouraging investment from outsiders. Uh, they are trying to become a modern world. Uh, you know, Egypt, too many people, not enough food, not enough jobs, not enough future. Uh, so they're trying to avoid that and so far successfully. No riots when I was there. Well, I was going to say, knowing what we know about, or what we think we know about President Clinton's interest in the UFO topic, I'm surprised he didn't seek you out. Well, you know, he did make one comment during his uh, keynote address that was interesting. He mentioned some recent scientific findings, including that a planet that was much like Earth had recently been found out there, and what an impact uh, that might have. So, you know, who knows what he was thinking when he said it, but it, the common comment I got was we were surprised to have the topic, uh, you know, uh, contact from outer space, but it uh, sounds intriguing. Uh, didn't seem to bother any of the people who talked to me, and I specifically asked one of the hosts, uh, I said, you know, the guys who spoke to me were nice, but I would expect that the people who didn't think nice things would have spoken to you, not to me. <laughs> Was there any problem? No. Very well received. Delighted. <laughs> what can I say? Well, it's funny, because if they, they ever do come down and uh, share with us some of their technologies, then uh, I'd have to say Saudi Arabia's economy might go in the tank after that. Well, that's why the, maybe that's why they're doing what they're doing. I don't know. I mean, just like, you know, it, it, it's easy to read into action something that may not be there. When, when the Pope, why did the Pope make that comment two years ago? about uh, God made us, and no reason he couldn't make our brethren in outer space. And my first thought was, what does he know that we don't know? <laughs> 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 yeah, 
you know, so uh, I, I'm not going to speculate a lot about it. I'll be publishing in my monthly column about it in uh, UFO Magazine, the MUFON Journal. and uh, But it was an interesting experience, although it took one heck of a long time to get from Fredericton, New Brunswick, where I am, to Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. No direct flights. <laughs> I was going to say no direct flights there. Uh, no, not even indirect. From here to Montreal to London to Riyadh with long waits at airports. So that's the price you pay. Well, I hear all those airports are lovely this time of year. Say that again? I said I hear all those airports are lovely this time of year. You can look no. out the window and see, <laughs> see what the atmosphere is like. I'll tell you, we've had a lot of snow this winter. <laughs> it was pleasant in Riyadh, Saudi Arabia. No snow. <laughs> Well, why don't we bring on your co-author, scientific ufologist Kathy Martin is a New Hampshire native. She's engaged in UFO research and investigation for more than 20 years and is recognized as an authority on UFO abductions. She received formal training as a social worker, educator, and hypnotherapist. She was awarded a BA degree with honors from the University of New Hampshire and participated in graduate studies in the education at the University of Cincinnati and UNH. During her 15 years as an educator, she innovated, designed, and implemented model educational programs. She also held a supervisory position, coordinating training and evaluating education staff. Additionally, she taught education classes on UFO and abduction history. For 10 years, she served on the MUFON Board of Directors as the Director of Field Investigator Training. In 2003, MUFON publicly recognized her outstanding contribution of advancing the scientific study of the UFO phenomenon and demonstrating positive leadership. Her articles have appeared in the MUFON Journal and Best UFO Cases. She has also written several research papers on hypnosis and false memory studies. More recently, she has been working with the UFO abduction experiencers. She is the niece of Betty and Barney Hill and the conservator of their extensive UFO collection. She is also, of course, a co-author, along with Stan, of Captured, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience. But they're here tonight to tell us about their new book, Science Was Wrong. Good evening, Kathleen. How are you? I'm fine, thank you. It's good to be with you. You know... I was excited when I when I saw this book pop up uh, in the the catalogs that come out, and just seeing the title "Science Was Wrong." I know that recently the publisher had put out a book called "History Was Wrong" by Eric Von Daniken. But when I saw "Science Was Wrong," I said, "Okay, I like the idea of where this is going." And then as soon as I saw that it was you guys that wrote the, wrote the book, I said, "Oh, that's just perfect." <laughs> how, how did this come about, Stan? How did this the idea to kind of backtrack and show some of science's slip ups uh, come about? Well, when we were working on uh, Captured, and I was working on Flying Saucers and Science, it became obvious that one of the big problems, the major objections to anybody getting here in the first place, was bad science by smart people. Uh, and as we look back in history, we found all kinds of examples of smart people saying stupid things, to put it bluntly. So as we met to you know, go over the, the Hill case and others, uh, we realized that, gee, <laughs> there's an awful lot of this uh, stupid stuff going on. Why don't we put together a book that covers a lot of the areas? And it may surprise people, but Kathy has a chapter on abductions. That's no surprise. And I have one on UFOs. But the other 12 chapters all deal with other subjects because there are so many examples. It's not just in ufology that uh, people make false claims. We, we Remember, the basic rule is don't investigate, proclaim. <laughs> That's true. <laughs> uh, we, we, I mean, we come to expect with the UFO phenomena and the abduction phenomena, we expect you know the mainstream science to, to second-guess what people are, are putting out there for information. But 
there's examples here that go back to things that we take for granted now as being like, how could they ever have thought that was a bad idea? I mean, science, we're supposed to trust scientists. We're supposed to trust them to know what's best. And it doesn't seem like that was always the case. We're supposed to trust journalists, too, and that's not always the case. <laughs> well, uh, I'll admit to that. For being one myself, I'll admit to that. Uh, Kathy, when uh, when you started researching some of these other topics outside of your normal uh, fields of study, I mean, were you surprised at just how many uh, things had been poo-pooed from the beginning? Yes, I, I really was, particularly in medicine. Uh, I was really shocked when I was doing research for uh, a chapter about childbed fever uh, to find that uh, although Ignac Semmelweis, who was a medical doctor at the Vienna General Hospital back in the mid-1800s, had discovered a way to prevent childbed fever it was simply by washing one's hands, uh, the notion was rejected. And he ended up actually being fired from his job and, and disgraced over his discovery, and although he had, uh, the, the way that he came about discovering this is that the Vienna Hospital was divided into two maternity wards. One was the midwifery ward, uh, where, where they did not di- dissect cadavers, and then there was the medical doctor's ward, the new medical doctors who were training, and that's where Ignac Semmelweis worked. And he led his students every morning uh, into the mortuary to do their dissections. Uh, immediately thereafter, they'd just wipe their hands on their bloody aprons and take the aprons off and go into the maternity ward without washing their hands and do multiple internal examinations on laboring women. As a result, Whole rows of women and infants died within days of each other when bacteria uh, was transmitted from their hands into open wounds in the women. The mortality rate in the midwifery ward was only 2%, but in the obstetrical ward, it was 20% or higher. Now, he, when he instituted this hand-washing program, and forced all the medical students to wash their hands before they did internal examinations, the mortality rate dropped to 2%, just the same as it was in the midwifery unit. But, you know, as I said, that idea was rejected, and this rejection was carried throughout Europe. Although Semmelweis uh, kept very careful records, Although he did scientific experiments, uh, although he published and spoke about his discovery, doctors throughout Europe proclaimed him a charlatan. So it was uh, a very horrible story for him. He ended up going back to his home country of uh, Hungary and working there in a hospital where he instituted the idea of uh, over a a lot of criticism and resistance, but finally it worked in that hospital. And eventually, years after his death, his discovery was recognized, and there was a medical school named after him, 
and uh, his photograph is on the Austrian stamp, but that's just an example of how this kind of notion that something is impossible because it doesn't fit with our preconceived notions, uh, how that is carried through. See, what's amazing to me, and maybe it's we take this for granted because we live in a world where there's running water right, right a few doors down from wherever we are, but I can't imagine spending the day putting my hands in cadavers and then just wiping my hands off on my apron. You know, I'd, I'd want to scrub as much as I could off it. Germs or not, you know, understanding that they didn't know about germs then, but being yeah. able to get that goo off my hand as best as possible, that'd be what I'd want to do. <laughs> I well, think that's all of us want to do today, but it was successful doctor was how bloody his apron was. <laughs> that's true. Or uh, how, how rare a Beatles album cover was. True, that's, that goes too. But, uh, well, it's, but the medical field is prime with examples of this. And, and reading in the book, there's so many different cases of where they kind of, they being the they that you write about, they kind of scoffed at any new advances, at any new ideas that didn't go with the norm. I mean, the idea of being able to, uh, first of all, even transmit smallpox, let alone be able to uh, inoculate someone against it. That was many ex- one of many examples, and it, it, it's kind of scary uh, because we like to think, uh, the first notion of people who read this book is, oh, well, but that was in the past, Stan. We, do, we don't do that anymore. <laughs> we do, too. <laughs> All kinds of stuff. Uh, I, I wrote a section on flight and on space, and it, it's incredible how the astronomical community, for example, has been anti-space travel, anti-rocketry, the British Astronomer Royal in 1958 said space travel is utter bilge. Nobody will ever spend the money it's going to take. It would be much better to spend the money on better instruments for astronomy. That was one year before Sputnik. And what field of science has benefited the most from the space program? Astronomy. And they're still saying you can't get here from there, which is one of those stupid things. But you know, it's not the only thing. That may be thought of as an intellectual thing, but uh, there's a chapter about uh, flight, and a guy named Billy Mitchell, one of my sort of heroes, First World War pilot, uh, American, and after the war, he was very vociferous about his conclusions that having flown during the war and watched a lot of progress in just a couple of years, uh, the United States was in the war, uh, that soon we'd be, it would be revolutionized warfare would, and we'd be sinking ships from the sky by dropping bombs on them. Well, what a stupid thing to say. The Secretary of the Navy said he'd, he'd stand on the deck of any ship that Billy was going to bomb and, you know, wouldn't worry about it at all. And he was court-martialed, incidentally, for uh, insubordination, because you're not supposed to disagree with the big shots. And there's a real irony here. In, on November 29th, 1941, it was the Army-Navy football game. You know, a great event every year. And in the program for the game, there was a picture of the USS Arizona, this mammoth battleship, and a comment in the write-up that nobody had ever sunk a battleship from the air. Eight days later, Pearl Harbor, and the USS Arizona was sunk with the deaths of 
1,100 sailors. 1,100. Now, the Japanese knew that you could sink a ship or certainly believed that you could. Uh, we weren't prepared for anybody trying to do that. So uh, there are consequences, and that, that's one of the main themes of the book, is that it's not just intellectual questions, you know. In the real world, there are consequences. Uh, I do have a chapter on uh, so-called uh, global warming, uh, anthropogenic global warming, man-caused. And there's an, an awful, it's like a delicatessen out there. There's so much baloney being served on that subject. Uh, you know, I get a kick out of, it's sad, People calling CO2 a pollutant, for goodness sakes. We have to reduce the amount of evil CO2. Hey, every living plant on this planet needs CO2. And it's not, by far, it's not the biggest uh, greenhouse gas. Water vapor is, and we don't do much about that. But people are talking of spending hundreds of billions of dollars based on bad science, false claims, vested interests on the part of people getting their research grants, and uh, finally they're slowing down a little bit in Europe as they realize that, uh, well, we had an example here, windmills, 35 of them didn't work when it got real cold the other day. They got ice on them up here, and they stopped. <laughs> oh, they're supposed to run in the wintertime, too, huh? <laughs> It's not funny, but, uh, you know, and people are talking about solar-powered hot water heaters here up on the roof. Now, I had to pay somebody to take two feet of snow off my roof the other day. <laughs> that is global warming for you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, uh, and now they're blaming the cold wave on global warming, which I find really funny. But it, what, what I'm saying is this offensive irrationality vested interests uh, are still around. They haven't stopped. Well, it's interesting that you mentioned the vested interest because uh, that seems to be the case of, of what really is the, the, the story behind the story here. The, the chapter on the AIDS epidemic is particularly uh, enlightening to anybody that doesn't know the whole story behind that, and it kind of gives a good parable for how things actually end up progressing or actually not progressing as the case may be not progressing yeah kathy did yeah, that one. not progressing at all um that was quite interesting to to research i hadn't previously realized that such a very large percentage of hemophiliacs throughout the world became hiv positive uh directly caused by American drug companies refusing to accept the idea that their blood products might be contaminated, uh, making the proclamation that uh, there was only one chance in a million that hemophiliacs who used this, this blood product, uh, factor eight concentrate, would become HIV positive, and they were just totally wrong. And it took so much research and so many hurdles to reach the conclusion that there was a virus or there was something in the blood that was causing HIV. And 
there were cover-ups. For example, um, you know, the French uh, at Louis Pasteur Institute had discovered the virus. But in the United States, the team headed by Robert Gallo didn't want to accept those findings. They had their own hat theory that they were pursuing and apparently had more power uh, with um, magazines like Science uh, to, to be published. So the French were initially not published, even though they had these really outstanding findings, incredible findings. And it wasn't until they joined Gallo and let him put his name on the article with them that that information got out to other scientists. And then, of course, the, the United States uh, was the first to announce that we had found the cause, the virus that caused AIDS, when, in fact, it was the French, but there was an international controversy there, and it held up testing uh, for a long, long time because it ended up in court. Uh, in the end, Luc Montagnier and uh, Francois Barr who were the French scientists who discovered this, they called it uh, GRID, uh, the ones who discovered it, uh, ended up getting the Nobel Prize in the year 2008 uh, for finding the, the cause of AIDS, not Robert Gallo and his team in the United States. And, and think of how many people suffered in the, in the interim when they were battling this out. Think of, and also with with the hemophiliacs as well. Think of how many lives were lost, basically based on, uh, for one, political posturing, and on the other hand, you know, a refusal to kind of reform the way they were doing business because it would have cost money while they were trying to make money. Yeah, that's and true. An estimated ten thousand Americans became HIV positive. That's ten thousand American hemophiliacs. Ninety percent of the Factor Eight concentrators. Concentrate users became HIV positive, and simply because they didn't screen for the virus in, in any of the donations that they were getting. Well, That's yeah, right. It was actually a mistake in the beginning because they used filters um, to filter uh, viruses and and bacteria out of the blood, but the filters really were not effective in filtering the virus out. Uh, so the blood product came through with the virus. Uh, the Germans, I believe it was, Stan, am I correct, yes. had developed the heating process uh, that would kill this virus. But it wasn't cost-effective to use in the United States, so they simply didn't implement that technique. And they went into denial. And as a result, thousands of people became infected. And what yes. was... Oh, sorry, go ahead, Stan. I was just going to say that the reason for the difficulty here was that the concentrate, the uh, factor that was being used by the hemophiliacs, was batch processing thousands of units of blood. If one was contaminated, the whole batch would be contaminated, you see. So it's not hard to understand why the, the blood system, the concentrate products, from which these companies were making lots of money, uh, would really be a bad deal. And there were some places that actually took in the old stuff and sent it off to another hospital. 
I mean, you know, how can one allow such things to happen? They did happen. That's the key. Well, Kathy, what's amazing about this, and again, I'm I'm not old enough where I can remember, you know, when I was growing up, I remember hearing about AIDS in school and, and learning, you know, in the 80s at least a little bit about it as I was growing up. But in the early stages of the public knowledge of this, it was, you know, it was only gay people had it or only intravenous drug users had it. And it, even when there was a case of a, of a newborn infant that ended up contracting it, it still didn't convince people. What, what, what exactly was the story with that part of the case? Well, um, they wanted to believe that it was only transmitted among high-risk populations. Um, they, they weren't really that knowledgeable about what was causing it at that point, and there was a lot of political embarrassment in, uh, in the gay communities because of the, the bathhouses. They didn't want to close down the bathhouses, saying that, uh, you know, that it might be a tr- sexually transmitted disease, uh, that wasn't politically correct. And the gay population was very, very generous in donating blood as well. So there, this was another political factor, and uh, they did not want to believe that other segments of the population might get this as well. That would be pretty alarming. In, in a way to say, you know, watch out, your newborn infant could have HIV. And, you know, Stan, you mentioned before the chapter is about flight and about space travel, and there's actually a parallel, I think, between what happened in those cases and what happened with the AIDS epidemic where, you know, science was short-sighted about how to handle AIDS because it was unlike anything they'd ever seen before. And you mentioned in the chapters uh, on flight and on space travel that the you know, scientific community at the time, they couldn't wrap their head around these possibilities because they were thinking about what they already knew and what they already have, and they weren't thinking about the advancements that might come to make that possible. And that seems to be where so much of this, you know, instances where science was wrong, it's based on that short-sightedness of only what's available and not what might be to come. Yeah, my mantra has been for a very long time, because I worked on such far-out programs, incidentally, that technological progress comes from doing things differently in an unpredictable way, and that it's the details that determine whether a new approach to, say, flight or space or whatever works, not just use general physics and we can show that was nonsense. To, To see where you can go wrong and how far you can go wrong, Dr. Campbell astronomer in 1941, was sick and tired of all his science fiction stuff about going to the moon. So he wrote a scientific paper, which he published, calculating the required initial launch weight of a rocket able to get a man to the moon and back. Just a dumb old chemical rocket. Pages of equations. Bottom line, it would have to weigh a million, million tons. Now, in 1969, we got three guys to the moon and back, still with a dumb old chemical rocket whose initial launch weight was 3,000 tons. He was off a factor of 300 million. He made every stupid assumption, and I don't like using that word, but it certainly applies here, that you could make. He assumed a single-stage rocket. It's been known for more than 20 years that you go to a multi-stage rocket. He assumed a limit of 1G acceleration. Astronauts routinely take 5Gs. 
he assumed that when you come back from the moon, you're going 25,000 miles an hour, you got to slow down. But he assumed the only way you could do that was to carry a retro rocket. But, of course, it's dead weight. You've got to launch it from the Earth. you got to slow it down at the moon. you got to launch it from the moon back toward the Earth and finally slow it down a bit back here before you, you fire it. What do we do? We say, well, gee, that weighs an awful lot. Why don't we use the atmosphere? If we're smart enough and we get the angle right, remember Apollo 13? Mm -hmm. Very important to get the angle right. You don't want to dig a hole in the ground by going too fast. You don't want to go by by going too slow. And uh, that is a major reason for reducing the weight. Another one, uh, I call it cosmic freeloading, uh, which is what we use on all our deep space probes. When we go to the moon, why is there a launch window? What difference does it make when we launch to go to the moon? Well, why not use the gravitational field of the moon? It's there. You don't need to provide it. So there's a launch window that is a certain time when if you launch, the moon will come along. It's very reliable now and pull you in. We have the uh, Cassini spacecraft out at Saturn now. It's been there for a few years doing great work studying the satellites of Saturn. And we sent that closer to the sun to go past Venus to get a free kick, directed back toward Earth to get another free kick, and on toward Jupiter to get another free kick, and there we are sitting out in orbit around Saturn. The weight would have it would have been impossible for us with the boosters we had and so forth if we hadn't taken advantage of Mother Nature. Uh, and we, all our deep space probes, and it's one of the things that I get aggravated about when I hear, especially astronomers, who don't know anything about flight, that's aerospace technology, you know, aviation, stuff like that. We have the head of the Hayden Planetarium, uh, say on the Peter Jennings mockumentary of February 24th, it's almost the anniversary, uh, 2005, that our fastest craft, the Voyager spacecraft, would take 70,000 years to get to the nearest star, and scientists like to have their data before the 70,000 years. This thing doesn't have a propulsion system on it. And it's like saying, well, if I throw this bottle in the ocean, that'll tell me how long it takes to cross the ocean. <laughs> That's true. Or, you know, fly a kite, and that tells me how fast I can fly around. I mean, utterly ridiculous. But what do astronomers know about flight? Not much. is <laughs> a simple answer, I guess. Uh, and the thing is that when uh, there's a, uh, a domino effect here, when a big shot professor makes a proclamation, that gets listened to by other big shot professors who feel that uh, they don't need to do the work, they can listen to big shot professor number one. That's BS professor number one, you understand. And uh, uh, instead of doing their own homework and doing a, sen a sensible calculation, looking at the details. Uh, well, a good example of that in our lunar program. Originally, it was going to take two Saturn Vs uh, to accomplish getting a man to the moon. Well, one engineer recognized that, you know, if we play our cards right and we have lunar orbit rendezvous instead of Earth orbit rendezvous, we could do this with one. He went to Von Braun, 
They went over the numbers several times. Son of a gun. That looks like it's going to work. So the engineer's job is to get the job done. The ancient academic and fossilized physicist, uh, I can say that since I'm a physicist, you see, uh, their approach is not to get the job done, but to figure out ways that it can't be done. That's not very useful. Uh, so go with the pragmatic guys. Uh, that's where our progress comes from. Almost every great advance has been called impossible. Matter of fact, the original title for the book was supposed to be, It's Impossible, Isn't It? <laughs> but the publisher changed the title. Uh, uh, and he has the right to do that for people. Somebody asked, well, what do you mean he changed the title? It's in the contract. He has the uh, right to change the title. <laughs> as, a, as a journalist, I can only write the story. I don't get to write the headlines. I know exactly what you mean. That's well, the, right. The, the title is still pretty catchy, the one that they went with. Science was wrong. Startling truths about cures, theories, and inventions they declared impossible. And we are talking with the authors Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin. We're going to take a break now for the news. Uh, when we come back on the other side, though, we'll talk more about when science was wrong, including when they're wrong right now. And I'm talking, of course, about psi phenomena, the UFO phenomenon, and alien abduction. So we'll get into all of that and more coming up in the next hour. Uh, for those of you watching Spooky TV, that just crashed. So we're going to try and get that up again <laughs> going for the second hour as well. And uh, we'll hopefully, if everything works out, uh, it will. But if not, you'll get to hear our lovely voices and not have to stand here and watch us talking to microphones. Which I don't know why they like watching that anyway. But uh, we'll take a break for the news. When we come back, we'll have more on why and when science was wrong. If you want to check out the book, just go to Amazon.com. Uh, you can also go to the Spooky South Coast store on SpookySouthCoast.com as well. And you can purchase it there. We'll be back with more after the news here on Spooky South Coast. I know who you are. Spooky South Coast. That's a good show, man. You know what? I got a theory about your show. You guys got no idea what's going on. Well, excuse me for having enormous flaws. Spooky South Coast is back. The key to the whole thing is to think as a child. And for me, that comes very easy. I can smell your fears. I'm not afraid. You will be. All right, welcome back. Hour number two of Spooky South Coast, and that's the sound of Moni's smart food. <laughs> like he needs to get any smarter. And uh, we we got Spooky TV up and running. It looks like for now, no guarantees. We'll have to update all the firmware and software and everything elsewhere during the course of the week. But it is running on SpookySouthCoast.com, so if you click on the Spooky TV lo uh, logo there, you'll get it for a limited time only. <laughs> all right, let's get right back into our discussion with Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin about their new book, Science Was Wrong, Startling Truths About Cures, Theories, and Inventions They Declared, declared Impossible. And... I'm going to throw out the phone numbers as well, 508-996-0500, or 
1-877-996-1420, or you can email us, SpookyCrew, at SpookySouthCoast.com. You know, maybe you have a question about something that uh, you want to know how science reacted to it, or maybe you've heard something. Uh, you know, we've all heard stories, Stan, about uh, <laughs> scientists who repeatedly deny the existence of UFOs, and no matter how yep. much evidence we put in their face, they just can't accept even the possibility that they could be visitors from well, elsewhere. remember, there are four basic rules for debunkers. We're not talking about skeptics now. Kathy and I are skeptics. We say maybe. We have a big gray basket, and until we do our research, we, we don't know. But uh, there are four basic rules for the true debunkers. One, don't bother me with the facts. My mind's made up. Two, what the public doesn't know, I'm not going to tell them. Three, if you can't attack the data, attack the people. Mm. It's easier and nobody will know the difference. And four, do your research by proclamation because investigation is too much trouble. And again, nobody will know the difference. It's easy to say there is no evidence. I get particularly irked at the SETI community. SETI, silly effort to investigate you. Uh, They don't study the UFO evidence at all. They never reference the large-scale scientific studies, but they know that uh, there's nobody coming here. And if we just wait long enough, we will hear a signal from somebody using technology appropriate to us. We've had radio for, what, 110 years, roughly, and there are stars out there in the local neighborhood that are a billion years older than us, but they're going to use Earth-favorable technology, which is utterly ridiculous. I don't use a slide rule anymore. Uh, I did when I started work a number of years ago. You know, times change. Technology changes. Uh, we didn't have big computers and the Internet and all that other stuff just a few years back. I know that's hard for the young people to realize, but how could you live without the Internet, you know? or Facebook or or whatever. Uh, Incidentally, uh, you made a great announcement earlier that the priority mail postage rate wasn't going up. And Kathy and I both have copies of Science Was Wrong, and if you get it from us, it gets autographed by both of us. Mm, So why don't we give out our email, our, uh, (laughs) yeah, just what we need, email addresses, uh, our websites, and, uh, Kathy, why don't you say yours? Ladies first. Okay. It's triple W, Kathleen, K-A-T-H-L-E-E-N, hyphen, Martin, M-A-R-D-E-N, dot com. Um, and mine and is... Uh, everything sorry. that I have for sale is offered there, along with some uh, good articles that I've posted that you might find interesting. And I have the same situation for me, www.stantonfriedman.com. And lists all, uh, I, my name is on five books, and you can get all of them and all of them autographed. Uh, we have specials and bargains and stuff. And incidentally, for people who are traveling to where it's warm this coming week, we'll be down in Phoenix at the 20th Annual International UFO Congress. They tell us they're going to have their biggest attendance yet. Uh, I hope that's good. Anyway, <laughs> there's just some interesting papers coming up. We're each giving one, uh, and it should be fun, and it should be warmer, uh, at least than it is here. Uh, where Kathy lives, it's warm. 
It is beautiful. It was 81 degrees here mm. in Florida today. You know, Kathy, New Hampshire's listening, and <laughs> <laughs> you're making them jealous now. I bet I am. I'm so happy that I moved down here about a year ago in order to avoid those long, cold winters in New Hampshire. But you don't have any mountains. You know, you miss the mountains at all, or... Well, yeah. you know, I, I'm i in the hilly area of Florida, so we actually do have uh, a town called Mount Dora nearby, which is, is more or less a big hill. So I'm in the highest area of, of Florida, but... I do miss the mountains, and I do get back to New Hampshire during the summer. And I just want to point out, before Chris Balzano, our content director, gets too excited, the hilly part of Florida has nothing to do with you, Chris. All right, that's a <laughs> little in-joke for the spooky South Coast chat room there. But uh, in, in discussing the idea of, of UFOs, though, and it's something that we talk about all the time here on the show you guys are talking about it every day. No matter, it seems like no matter how much we further the conversation, no matter how much... I mean, you say that the the people who are against UFO uh, phenomena say that there's no hard evidence. Well, the guy sitting here to my left, Matt Moniz, has actually brought me in physical evidence. He's shown me, I've held it in my hands, that it's there. How can we put all this in front of them and they still deny, deny, deny? Well, it, it seems to be to go with the territory. I... Uh, there are people who refuse to listen to the evidence. Don't bother me with the facts. Uh, my mind's made up. And remember that any scientist who has for years thought there was nothing to this subject, and any journalist, would have to admit they'd ignored the biggest story of the millennium for the last 60 years. It's called and the ostrich much, approach. Yes, very much the ostrich approach. And it's human nature, too, I guess. Uh you know, uh, I, I did a television show with David Susskind many years ago. And in the course of, uh, between segments, uh, he says, look, I read the New York Times. There's nothing there that says there's anything to flying saucers. And so there's the Susskind syndrome. I am smart. I pay attention to what's important. If aliens were visiting, that would be important. But if it were important, I would know about it. So I'm not going to waste my time on something that obviously there can't be any evidence for because I don't know about it a self-fulfilling prophecy. And this is a, a major difficulty. Look, I've been on Larry King four times. Well, I guess I won't be on again because he's not. <laughs> and they always have to have uh, a nasty, noisy negativist, as I call it. Now, they're not symmetric arguments. That is, the pro and the cons both have studied a heck of a lot of data and they disagree on details. Uh he often has people I don't know nothing about the subject. Bill Nye, the science guy, uh, whose purpose is to deny. And I have a note from his ex-wife saying, well, he probably spent at least five minutes on the Internet before doing the show. <laughs> and, and that's what it sounded like. Uh, and uh, I debated uh, on Coast to Coast with Michael Shermer, head of the Skeptics Society. And I got 80% of the vote because he obviously had done no homework whatsoever, made false claims. Uh, I debated with Seth Shostak, and uh, I got 57% of the vote. He got 33, 10% said, I don't know who won. Well, you know, why, you, know, you know why he got the 33% stand? No. Because all those SETI guys are just sitting around waiting for something to happen. They've got all the free time to vote on the computer. 
Uh, you're, you're probably right. You're probably right. And remember, something people tend to forget. If aliens are visiting Earth, who needs SETI? Uh, maybe you should learn sign language, you know. And so we have them telling us that there is no evidence but no reference to the five large-scale scientific studies I talk about. As a matter of fact, Seth and I each gave uh, three lectures on the last westward cruise of the Queen Elizabeth II. In the course of my lecture, uh, one of them, I mentioned five large-scale scientific studies and described them. And then after each, I asked, how many people here have read this? There were one or two percent of the audience. Uh, Seth didn't raise his hand any time. Now, he has admitted on the air that he had a copy of my book on his nightstand. He didn't say he had read it. <laughs> I read two of his books before I debated with him. Uh, and so, you know, it, it's aggravating that we need to show both sides of the story. Somebody who's been studying the data for 40 years and somebody who's been studying the data for 40 minutes. That, that makes no sense. What other subjects are we... You know, would you bring in the janitor who sweeps or mops the floor in the surgery and the surgeon to talk about brain surgery? I mean, you know, but that's what happens, and it happens often. And, uh, you know, I don't know how you get around that, but it, it's funny how silly the arguments are. Governments can't keep secrets. And Seth said, look at the post office, for goodness sakes, and look how FEMA fouled up, like, the response to Katrina. I didn't hear NSA, uh, CIA, DIA, NRO, the alphabet soup agencies. They're the ones who keep secrets, not the post office, for goodness sakes. Uh, you know, pretty darn silly. And you look at the uh, uh, Lockheed uh, Stealth Aircraft Program. They spent $10 billion over a 10-year period in secret. Don't tell me they can't keep secrets. It's silly. Uh, but there were people who want to listen to them. I, I did get a kick at it with Bill Nye, the science guy. He showed a document that had one line blacked out. And he said, these people are saying that there's a government cover-up about UFOs. But look, in this document, all they're covering up is the guy's address. It's a privacy issue. Fortunately, I had my book, Flying Saucers and Science, with me, and I could quickly turn to the page that shows a CIA UFO document, all blacked out except for eight words, the whole page, and was able to say, you know, this is what we're talking about. We're not talking about privacy issues. We're talking about governments not showing us what's going on. NSA all whited out, uh, except for one or two lines per page. So there's the real world, and then there's the world of the nasty, noisy negativists uh, who aren't connected to the real world, from, you know, making pronouncements from on high. Look, Kathy just did the uh, excellent chapter in the book about, uh, what do we call it, paranormal phenomena, Kathy? <laughs> yes, and I was just thinking about that actually because a recent survey showed that uh, a small percentage of the population will not believe in UFOs regardless of how much evidence is presented to them. And it brings to mind the fact that the majority of psychologists will not believe that telepathy is real or that psychic phenomena is real 
regardless of how much evidence is presented to them. And I wrote about the research projects that were done on uh, telepathy in the book, in uh, a chapter on psychic phenomena, and for well over a 100 years, there have been experiments done in laboratories, sometimes at universities, sometimes at private laboratories, that have clearly demonstrated that telepathy is real. Uh, there have been uh, new studies developed because the earlier the psychologists criticized the earlier ones as being biased. And uh, so the skeptics actually joined with the parapsychologists in setting up protocols uh, for their experiments in order to do all that they could to eliminate any kind of bias that might take place in these experiments. And still, the evidence was overwhelming that telepathy is real. And uh, there was an interesting case that was brought before the National Academy of Sciences uh, where there, were, there was a meta-analysis done on thousands of uh, experiments uh, to determine whether or not all of this was real. And uh, so this was taken to the National Academy of Sciences for review. And what, what ended up happening is that the National Academy of Sciences was found to be biased in their determination on this case. Uh, and it was sent to an independent review board. Uh, and what they found with side experiments is that they announced that a fairer hearing across a broader spectrum of the scientific community uh, should be done the next time so that emotionality wouldn't impede the objective assessment of experimental results. So this was found in, this was back in 1987. But even the National Academy of Sciences had to throw out some important studies in order to reject the idea that psi phenomena was real. Uh, so we see clearly that there is bias across the board. I started thinking about this, and it took me back to my college days of studying psychology, where the textbooks that I had clearly stated that psi phenomena was not real and went on to explain it over and over again. So I had, uh, with a background in psychology for, for years, had believed that there was nothing to it, that it was misperception. Uh, and until I started doing this very important research and uh, was truly amazed by the amount of scientific evidence that telepathy is real. Well, one of the go on, Kathy. I'm sorry. No, go ahead, Stan. I'm just going to say that one one of the problems here is that uh, a number of scientists have problems dealing with something where they can't control every aspect of the phenomena under study. They're good in dealing with things where there's no personality, where there's no human will, 
and where you can reproduce and reproduce and do the same experiment over and over again. But much of the real world doesn't work that way. I mean, I can't make an eclipse happen. It's not reproducible. You can't say to me, Stan, tomorrow morning at 10 o'clock I'll bring a camera. You show me the moon between the earth and the sun. Ah! Uh, stuff like that. And yet in our normal life, we're accustomed to realizing a guy's a great baseball player, not because he hits a home run every time he goes to bat, but because he hits a reasonable percentage of the time he gets a home run. There are all kinds of other things where we say, uh, when we're dealing with human behavior, and after all, UFO sightings are by humans, and experiments, telepathy, not everybody is on all the time. Uh, and yet we want to insist. They want me to give them a body. Michael Shermer said, give me a body and I'll believe in these things. That's not the nature of the beast. Uh, and I constantly run across this wanting to make phenomena that are inherently not controllable uh, as if they can't possibly be real. Look, if you have an automobile accident, uh, somebody gets killed. You can use the methods of science to figure out what happened. You couldn't predict where it would happen or when it would happen or who would be involved. But you can study the skid marks. You can study the thickness of the brake linings, the weather conditions, the alcohol level in the person. There are ways to approach problem solving that are scientific. It doesn't require absolute the same every time. And if you can't reproduce it, it's no good at all which is what some people have claimed that's what science is all about. Well, it isn't. Uh, sometimes you got to wait for things to happen, and then you make observations. That's science, too. And with UFOs, you know, I can't say, hey, guys, come on back, will you? I'll get my camera so I can take good <laughs> pictures. I, that's not the nature of the beast. It would help a lot, though, if they were available for photo opportunities and scheduled interviews. Well, yes, that would be nice. And, yeah. you know, that does raise another question about their being available. You hear all these silly jokes about why don't they land on the White House lawn. Now think about it. Does the President of the United States speak for 6.7 billion earthlings? Not the last time I checked. Furthermore, it's a no-fly zone. Furthermore, we earthlings seem to shoot first and ask questions later. <laughs> Every major government would love to get its hands on a saucer and the inhabitants. You put the inhabitants in a zoo in charge of mission. And you grab the saucer and try to duplicate it so you can kill somebody someplace else. What are we Earthlings all about? I mean, I don't talk to the squirrels in my backyard. Why would an alien want to treat us as if we were equals? We're not equals. Because we're not going out there yet. Yeah. Well, let's throw the phone lines open. That's something I want to ask you about, too, a little bit later on. But uh, let's throw the phone lines open. 508 996 one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty, and we have a call on the line. Uh, good evening. You are on Spooky South Coast with Santon Friedman and Kathleen Martin. How you doing? Not too bad. How you guys doing? Oh, we are spooktacular. And I had to jump out of the chat room there. Well, go ahead and ask your question. You're on with Stan and Kathleen. Hi, Stan and Kathleen. How you doing? Hi. 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 I had a quick question for you. Um, if you really kind of look back at, especially stuff that's in the uh, popular media. Um, going back to, like, say, the Hill case and everything else, um, where nuclear energy was coming into its age and everything else. Now that we're approaching, like, with the collider, the uh, CERN collider, 
Yeah, stuff like that where there's a whole ton of different possibilities, stuff that we haven't even begun to fathom yet that could be coming from this uh, machine. Do you think that maybe if they are out there that they're kind of watching this technology closely, kind of like, almost like that Star Trek movie where the aliens wouldn't come close to the planet until we evolved far enough where they could feel safe enough to deal with us rationally? Well, I would say that the response sort of goes the other way. I think one of the things, I, I assume that every advanced civilization is concerned about its own survival and security. That means keeping tabs on the primitives in the neighborhood, but only close tabs on those primitives that show signs of being able to bother us. Now, <clears throat> at the end of World War II, there were three signs that soon these idiot earthlings, we had only killed 50 million of our own kind during the war and destroyed 1,700 cities. That's pretty idiotic, I would think. Soon these idiot earthlings would be out bothering them, soon meaning 100 years, which is nothing on a cosmic time scale. There were three signs, nuclear weapons, powerful rockets, B-2s, and powerful radar, which didn't exist in Europe until uh, after the beginning of the Second World War. And, in other words, they're coming here to keep us from going out there. Uh, and the kicker is, look at the transition that happened in the 10-year period and how much energy we can control. Uh, a big bomb during World War II was a 10-ton blockbuster. It took a big B-29 to carry that. And it made a pretty good mess on the ground when it was dropped. Now, in, that was 42. In 45, we had the first atomic bomb. The amount of energy released about the same as exploding, let's say, 16,000 tons of TNT. That was in 45. 52, seven years later, first H-bomb. Fireball was three miles wide. Released the energy of 10 million tons of TNT. From 10 to 10 million in 10 years. Now, I worked on fusion propulsion system studies back in the early 60s. If you use the right stuff in the right way, you can kick particles out the back end of a fusion rocket. That's what H-bombs are, nuclear fusion devices. They can kick those particles out with 10 million times as much energy per particle as they can get in a chemical rocket. That means the stars are indeed within reach. <clears throat> and if I were an alien, I'd be concerned. I've asked a lot of people. Uh, if you were an alien, would you want Earthlings out there? And everybody says no. I wonder why. <laughs> so, in other words, I don't think they're here uh, because it's the honeymoon capital of this corner of the galaxy. They may be stealing goodies from us. Heavy metals were the densest planet in the solar system. But what I'm saying is that recognition of how we behave and the limited amount of energy you need by comparison to what's available to get to the stars would make them very concerned about us. You've heard about all this fuss about nukes and UFOs. There's a whole press conference in Washington about that. Aliens have shown a lot of interest in uh, missiles that have nuclear warheads on them and at nuclear test sites and things like that. Uh, I think they recognize that man is a very destructive creature. And so I'm hoping they're worried about what happens to their families back home. They better check us out. Save us from ourselves. Yeah, well, I think they're more concerned about saving themselves from, from us. us. <laughs> <laughs> We're a threat to everybody in the neighborhood. 
Yeah, and I think the real question too I was asking is with the uh, the collider um, experiments that they're running. Um, yeah. I mean, you're looking back at some of the stuff that Einstein had proposed and everything, especially about time and everything else. And I mean, we'd be kind of really overstepping the basic forms of uh, transportation and everything else that we have right now. The limited means and is this something that would really interest them? Like you said, they want, if we're the primitives on a block, if all of a sudden we could jump from one point to another just because we figured out, well, we can create it in the lab and uh, create that type of energy that we we would need. Is that something that they would really, really be well, focused on? Well, I think that it would be a way of measuring what we know. Uh, and incidentally, for people who worry about such things, we the particles in the Large Hadron Collider I go at 99.99999% of the speed of light. And Mother Nature makes particles that go faster than that, 99. a whole bunch of nines percent of the speed of light. Uh, this shocks some people, but, uh, yeah, Einstein was right, but that has implications. We don't know what all they are yet. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, thank you for calling in. No problem. Good job, guys. And nice to uh, talk to you, Stan. Thanks. Have a good night. Again, the numbers are one eight seven seven nine nine six fourteen twenty five zero eight nine nine six zero five hundred. Sometimes I forget the uh, the old tried and true one that we've had for five years now. It's all right. He'll just drop off, Matt. Don't worry about it. And uh, I, one of the things that you had mentioned before, uh, and we were talking about the idea, Stan, of kind of the turning a blind eye to the possibility of future technologies. I think a lot yeah. of the scientists who condemn the idea of interstellar travel are also forgetting that maybe these other civilizations that are out there, it's not an advanced version of what we have now. Maybe they never had what we have now. Maybe they were able to skip over it because of their own society. We just yeah. seems like we have to put everything in terms of ourselves. Uh, that's Earthlings, all right. Me, 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 society. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, yeah, we're what's important on this planet. Uh, you know, there were an awful lot of people who went west in 1849 to California and 1898 to Alaska and also later to Australia. They weren't there to meet the natives. They were there to get the gold. That's mm -hmm. where the action is. Uh, and I should add that the Earth is the densest planet in the solar system. I don't mean the people. That's another <laughs> I was going to ask. <laughs> but... The Earth has more heavy metals than any other planet in the solar system. And, you know, people forget. Uranium, very dense, almost twice as dense as lead. A hundred years ago, it was used to make a yellow glaze for dining room table plates and cups and all that sort of stuff. It wasn't used for anything nuclear. We didn't even know that there were neutrons until 1932. We're not too smart. Well, one of the questions that I want to ask you, Kathy, uh, in the chapter on abductions, you, you talk a lot about the, well, I'm assuming that you they wrote this part, but you talk a lot of the, the idea of uh, how much psychologists want to downplay the abduction experience and how they want to say that these people are prone to fantasy or find other <laughs> instances in their life uh, that might cause, you know, maybe repressed memories to resurface as abduction phenomena. I mean, as somebody who deals with abduction cases all the time, and I know Matt Moniz does as well, it must drive you crazy to hear them try to belittle the experiences that these people are undergoing. 
It doesn't really drive me crazy. I think I can understand where they're coming from, actually, because if, uh, if you're using the tenets of Western scientific thought, when you think about uh, the scientific investigation of UFO abductions, the only legitimate method that they can follow and obtain funding for is to study the abductees um, uh, and the psychological processes that these alleged abductees go through. What kind of personality disorders might they have? What kind of uh, difficulties might they have emotionally, socially, psychologically? Uh, so I think that that's where they actually came from. And this was really an outgrowth of the recommendation made by the Condon Committee when it went to the National Academy of Sciences again, that funding uh, might be given to psychologists and other social scientists for the study of UFO observers, is what the Condon Committee and the National Academy of Sciences said. And, and we see this happening today in universities, mostly among false memory researchers, uh, but also among uh, other psychologists. So, but the interesting thing is that, in general, those who have been studied tend to fall within the normal range of functioning on all of these tests. Now, certainly there is a percentage of individuals who believe they've been abducted, but they're fantasy-prone. Or they've had dreams, and, and they've come to believe that those dreams were real and ended up having hypnosis and, and reliving their dreams under hypnosis and believing that they had a real abduction. Uh, there are people who have personality disorders. Uh, there are people who have a number of these things. But it's a small percentage. And the important thing here is, I think, that those people who have the most evidence that they actually have been abducted and have been studied or have had their cases investigated for completely normal across the board, um, so that you know there are there are no personality disorders, there's no fantasy proneness among these individuals. And the question to me is not have thousands of people been abducted, but have only a few. That's very significant in itself. And if there's scientific evidence that only a few have been abducted, and we have uh, the forensic evidence. We have the laboratory tests. Uh, this is studied in uh, a very careful and conservative way. Then I think that's highly significant. Uh, for example, uh, I, in, in the Hill case, did a comparative analysis of Betty's and Barney's statements under hypnosis about their abduction to test Dr. Simon's hypothesis that Betty had merely had a series of dreams 
that she, that information had been transferred to Barney, and that under hypnosis, Betty and Barney had confabulated fantasy information to tell the story of an abduction. And I, as in my book, Captured with Stan, the Betty and Barney Hill UFO experience, I went into uh, my comparative analysis, and I discovered evidence that it probably was a real abduction. And Walter Webb did that with his book, Encounter at Buff Ledge, where there was more than one abductee. There were two, Janet and Michael. They were uh, hypnotized separately. They hadn't ever discussed the case. They did have conscious memories of a very close encounter and observing beings on board this craft. They did have a period of lost time. There were witnesses who observed this craft. And under separate hypnosis, just as Dr. Simon did, uh, Walter, the, the couple that Walter Webb was investigating, uh, had positively correlating evidence that this was a real abduction. So I think that's the most important thing that we have to think of when we're studying uh, UFO abductions is is the study of the evidence, not necessarily the study of the personalities because uh, experimental study after study after study has demonstrated that UFO abductees, at least this core group of abductees, are perfectly normal. They fall within the average range on all of the psychological tests that they're given. Well, I think it only takes one case, one generally proven case to prove that in this case science is wrong. Yes. Yes. That's right. That's right. And that isn't, remember the question isn't what are UFOs or are all UFOs alien spacecraft? The question is are any. The question isn't are all people who claim to have been abducted telling the truth and really were. The question is have any. Uh, and the answer is yes. And so we learn to discriminate in our everyday uh, life all the time. Uh, and something that people seem to forget is that in the Hill case, for example, uh, there's plenty of physical evidence, too. I get a kick out of these people saying, oh, there's no physical evidence. No, the Betty and Barney didn't bring back a hunk of a flying saucer. <laughs> okay, that's true. But there were strange growths on Barney that had to be removed surgically. His shoes were scuffed. There were marks on the More car that Kathy saw. Uh, you know, Kathy, you were there, what, the... That was, what, three days later, four days later that you saw the mark? I was there uh, two to three days later uh, because my mother was Betty's sister. Betty called my mother when they they arrived home and and woke up that afternoon after napping. And uh, so I was there from the very beginning. I saw the evidence, uh, the the torn dress, the, the scrapes on the tops of Barney's shoes that, caused him to have to use them for yard work after that, although they had been his best dress shoes. There was forensic evidence there. Betty's dress had a two-inch tear at the top of the zipper on the back on one side, a one-inch tear on the other side. 
It was torn from waist to hemline, and the hem was torn down on one side. The dress was in fine shape when she put it on in the morning. She had just been riding in the passenger seat of the car. She had uh, dined a couple of times, so she'd gotten out of the car for that. And uh, she had gotten out of the car three times to observe this UFO that was coming in closer and closer, this large, silent, hovering craft. And I think that a lot of people in the general public don't realize the, that Betty and Barney had a close encounter because the information that has been disseminated to the general public uh, is very different. For example, in Parade Magazine, uh, there was an article by Carl Sagan, who was back, I believe, in 1993 and 94, and uh, it stated that Betty and Barney had observed a star-like object in the sky and that they grew nervous and turned on to narrow, winding mountain roads and uh, arrived home a couple of hours later than they anticipated. No information about the close encounter and false information about the turn onto a, a different road. It wasn't a narrow, mind, winding mountain road, by the way, and Barney never intended to make that turn. Uh, but Carl Sagan distorted the information and presented misinformation to the general public. And thousands and thousands of people read this article. It's, it was in the mainstream, and that's what people see. So people come to believe that Betty and Barney saw a light in the sky. They became lost. Betty had some dreams. They had hypnosis. And ba-boom, there is an alien abduction. Uh, you know, so how can you possibly believe something like that? But it's not the truth. Well, Dan and I are attempting to disseminate the truth. We have about four minutes left, but we do have one last caller, so let's take that call really quickly. Good evening. You're on Spooky South Coast with Stanton Friedman and Kathleen Martin. Hey, Tim. Hi to two, Matt, and I wanted to say uh, thanks for putting on this forum, and uh, just a quick thing for Stan. I've, um, I've been a uh, great admirer of his for, for many years, and uh, Catherine, too. Uh, I just wanted to talk a little bit about a UFO experience I had about 1971 in Boston at the Bellevue Hill Water Tower. Uh, myself and a group of kids were up there sledding at night. It was the winter, dead winter, clear night. And myself and this kid, Jim, walked up the path to the road that goes around the water tower. That's the highest point in the city. And we stepped out into the road, and there's all pine trees there. Once we stepped up into the road, this craft lit up almost above us. And it was silent, didn't make any noise. Um, it was overwhelming. And I was frozen in place. And the kid, I was with Jim uh, Karras. He grabbed me by the jacket and tried to pull me in, but I couldn't move. And I would say we, we looked at it for maybe 30 seconds. Um, I didn't see it come or go, but I definitely did see it there. It wasn't a helicopter. It wasn't anything like a spaceship. I mean, not, not like a spaceship, but like a blimp or anything. Uh, but the funny thing was, you know, I put that out of my mind for maybe decades, and then I was back up there once with my dog, and everything came back to me. That's so. pretty common, actually, that uh, I've had 
couples tell me the strange thing was we didn't talk about it afterward. And I don't know why we didn't talk about it. Uh, yeah, there, there is an impact on the personality, whether it's a message from above saying, forget it, or, you know, you didn't see us, you can't see us, <laughs> go away, <laughs> or, or what's going on, we don't know. Yeah, but Kathy, I'm sure you've run across... I have a question for you. You said that you couldn't move. Uh, was that the result of, of fright or fascination, or was it from an external force that prevented you from moving? Well, I think it was, you know, thinking back, I, I can explain it like this. It, it would be like being in the front row of a movie theater and then having the screen come on, like the first opening, you know, glimpses is the light comes on. Um, it was definitely a light ad admitted, you know, from from the from the craft, whatever it was, um, you know. And thinking back to that that night, I know I saw it. He saw it. Um, I don't see this guy anymore, but I, I'm a friend um, of his cousin, and I asked him to ask him about him next time he saw it. He does still remember it that night. Uh huh. Um, so you feel that you were mesmerized by it, and that's why you couldn't move? Yeah, I definitely don't recall any missing time or anything like that. Um, mm -hmm. But it was definitely o overwhelming at the at the time, and it, you know, the only one that would would believe me was my oldest sister. Uh huh. But, but just prior to that, in Boston, like the late sixties, early seventies, there was a there was a big rash of um, UFO sightings. I know you guys are trying to wrap up the uh, show, so I'll get out of the way. Well, thank you for calling Thanks in. Thanks for calling. Interesting All right, sighting. Thanks, guys. All right. Yeah, but, I mean, that does seem to be very familiar, that those memories go away and then they come back when yeah. something triggers them. Mm -hmm. Yes. Thank you, guys. All right. Have a good night. And uh, thank you, Stan and Kathleen, for joining us, and we'd love to have you back on again in the future. You guys have a new project that you're working on together? or? Well, we'll be talking about that this coming week in Arizona. Where it's warm. <laughs> right, sounds good. Make sure whatever it is that you come back and join us again. Okay, don't forget our websites now www.stantonfriedman.com and Kathy. www.kathleen-marden.com. And they're both linked up with spookysouthcoast.com as well. Good. All right, thanks so much. Again, the book is called Science Was Wrong, Startling Truths About Cures, Theories, and Inventions They Declared Impossible. Pick yourself up a copy from their websites, and you can get them signed. And when you read it, contemplate what it is that we're saying. Sounds like it's wrong today, but we could be proven wrong in the future. All right, thanks, guys. Have a great night. Thanks. You too. Good night. It's There's such great guests. Every time they come on, it's just a fascinating episode, and... and They've, they're welcome back anytime. As many books as they want to write, we'll have them back every time. Great people to meet in person as well. So, uh, and if you want to go out to Phoenix, now's your chance to go out to Arizona to that UFO conference that's coming up next week. Because uh, we're not going to be on the air next week, so if you want to go do it, you can, unless you're one of the lucky 25 people that have a ticket to the Dead of Winter at the Lizzie Boyd and Ben and Breakfast. That's where we're going to be. But we're going to bring the laptop, we're going to bring the webcam, we're going to set it up, we're going to have it running. So check in with Spooky TV, I'd say, anytime after 8 o'clock. Between 8 o'clock p.m. and 2 a.m., and you'll be able to see some cool stuff happening. So that means we won't be back on for another two weeks, and I think that when we come back, our guest is Rusty McClure. So uh, we'll talk about his latest work, Coral Castle, and some of his other books as well. Uh, so until then, stay spectacular.